All right, take two, as I record this entire thing a second time after the audio on my first one failed. Hello, everyone. This is Onward in the Faith. My name is Ray Burns, and I'm glad you've come to continue to study First Peter with me. Uh, in this episode, we are going to be in First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Uh, so just as a quick reminder on how this series works, I am making this in an attempt to kind of help you hear and see what it can be look like to study God's Word. This is not the only way to do it. This is simply a, a kind of visual representation of what it looks like as I am reading, thinking through things, asking questions, tracking down answers, and things like that. Uh, if you would like to see the visual that I am working from, where I've got my verse and then kind of all my notes uh, ballooned around it, you can check the uh, show notes in the description in order to see a copy of it for yourself. So, as with last time, as you are maybe looking at this graphic, the color codes that I use are uh, blue things, are proper nouns that I want to know, so names and locations, making sure that even if it's something I've come across before, that I am at the very least pausing and saying, do I know who this person is? Do I know where this place is? Do I understand what is being said in this particular passage about this person or place. So if it's blue, it's a proper noun that I want to make sure I know because that gives me better context for what's happening. Uh, ideas that are in orange are just ideas that I know I'm going to want to understand. These are things that are making me kind of pause and say, do I understand that accurately? Am I Do I understand this particular word or the implications of this? Uh, is this maybe an Old Testament reference, etc.? Uh, things in yellow are, uh, as I look back, you know, as I've prepared this study uh, for YouTube and the podcast, as I'm looking back, I'm saying here is something that I know either as I was preparing this or in the past on my own, I have spent a good deal of time kind of digging into this, uh, making that a representation of the fact that sometimes we can just get a, you know, we can uh, encounter something, uh, we can understand it quickly or at least get a satisfactory answer to it before moving on. But sometimes it's worthwhile to dig into God's word, press against things, oftentimes even pressing against our own assumptions. And so that is what yellow represents. And then anything that I underline in green are connected words and ideas. And I have found this to be immensely valuable, as you'll even see in this episode. Uh, but when I take things and I start uh, either physically or usually mentally underlining them, I am saying, okay, removing kind of the surrounding language and, and words that are not directly attached to this word or idea, I can better trace out what this particular writer, in this case, Peter, is actually saying about something like or someone like God the Father, or salvation, or whatever it is. So those are the color codes that I will be working from for those of you who are following along with the visual of this. And if you're not, then just uh, enjoy, get out your own copy of God's Word. As a reminder, I work from the Legacy Standard Bible, which is an updated version of the New American Standard Bible, but ultimately, as long as you are using a, a good translation of God's Word, you should be just fine with what we're talking about today. So I'm going to read the passage, and then we will just kind of get into, from start to finish, things that stood out to me, always remembering this is not everything worth considering, this is not everything that even necessarily comes to mind as I read, and it will not be everything that comes to mind as you read, but these are things that I have tra traced down and wanted to share with you. 
So uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So that is our passage. And then as, again, as I'm reading, rereading, things stand out to me. Uh, what I'm going to show you here or talk through isn't typically what happens with just like a single, you know, 30 second read, but instead repeated readings of First Peter as I start at chapter one and maybe read through the entire book in a day and do that every day for a few weeks or a full month, whatever it is, whatever style of reading I'm doing at the time. So here are some questions that stood out to me, some things that I maybe wondered about, some things that I paused and considered. So uh, the first thing that stood out is it says, blessed be the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says the God and Father, but it specifically says the God of Jesus Christ. So a question that can easily pop up, especially in America where we have uh, other offshoots, maybe we could call them that, of Christianity, is this idea that Jesus and God, or Jesus is not God, that Jesus is a creation, Jesus is lesser. So what is going on here? Why does this seem to clearly be saying that that God is is a separate being, right? A, a separation from Jesus. Uh, we see this also in Matthew chapter twenty-seven, verse forty-six, where Jesus on the cross, quoting Psalm twenty-two, verse one, says, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" So how is why is Jesus, who we claim is God, calling out to God in the same way that we, who are not God, call out to God? We also see it in John 20, 17, saying, go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father. Okay, that's so far so good. You know, the, 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 the heavenly father is Jesus's father. But then he says, and my God and your God. So here, it almost seems to imply, kind of in line with what we're seeing in Peter, that Jesus is saying that, that he is not God, but instead that he appeals to God. He is submissive to God, that he relies on God in the same way that we do. So what's going on here? Because we also want to remember that we have things like uh, uh, Romans 9, 5, which says, whose are the fathers and from who is the Christ according to the flesh, who is God over all? So Romans, uh, with, with a more uh, updated translation, seems to very clearly say Jesus Christ who is God overall? Very clear statement of his deity. We also see in Titus 2.13 saying, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if you have a King James version, um, that is not reflected as well in there. And that's actually why uh, people like the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses get away with their weird translations of Jesus. But as we have better uh, learned how Greek, the, the Koine original Greek language works, right? How the grammar works and things like that. We've better understood that, no, the, the better way to translate these is ascribing deity to Jesus. That seems to very clearly be what that writer is doing. And so we have this weird tension now because we see in some places, Jesus is appealing to God in the same way that we humans appeal to God. But then biblical writers are saying he is God. 
And uh, if you even think of, um, you know, the uh, the Pharisees were angry and wanted to kill Jesus because he made himself equal to God. So what what are these tensions? Why does Jesus seem to be God, but also not God? Well, it's okay. Uh, this is something that we need to understand in terms of God as essence and God as person. In other words, in a Trinitarian understanding, which I assume most listeners would hold to, um, you know, we, we saw the Trinity in action just a few verses prior, if you remember our first video. But in a Trinitarian understanding, we say that God is one essence in three persons or three persons with one essence. In other words, we can talk about God and mean God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, right? This this divine uh, essence that they all share. But we can also talk about God, and often we mean God the Father. And so New Testament writers seem to do this. If we're honest, Christians throughout history do this. I know I do it, and I, I try to catch myself, but I, I definitely don't do it perfectly. But oftentimes, when we say God, we mean one of these aspects of God, right? We mean either God who is Trinity or God the Father. And so here, this is a long answer for what is probably a, or a long explanation for what is probably a simple answer. But here we want to understand that when he's saying the God and Father of Jesus Christ, that they're talking about, or Peter is talking about God's relationship, status, right? You've got the son and you've got the father. And that is how uh, Peter is is talking about these things is simply their relationship. So we don't need to slip into heresy. We don't need to start questioning or doubting things. It's okay. We're just talking about the person of God, the father, not the essence of God that Jesus is somehow separate from, because that's not at all true. And as always, Maybe you're, you've run across that and said, oh, that's nothing, but that's probably because you've got some good theology. Maybe not perfect theology, because none of us do, but this is where good theology helps us, right? Good, proper study and understanding of who God is, of what his word reveals, so that we can run into these things and maybe not pause and dwell on them. But I hope you've seen that it can be worthwhile to press against things and, 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 and push against our assumptions and traditions and say, this seems to say one thing, is that accurate? Does that fit within my whole puzzle uh, or mosaic of, of my beliefs? And we see that we're still doing okay. So the next thing that I note is... Uh, what this is saying about God the Father. And here is where that kind of underlying action can come in handy because it talks about God and then it says a lot of stuff. But when we focus and say, what is it specifically saying that God is doing? What is God's acting? We're seeing here that God the Father caused us to be born again. That's in line with what we saw uh, last episode, right, where we saw the Trinitarian uh, roles of each person in our salvation. So God the Father caused us to be born again. What are we born again into or for? We're born to a living hope, and we're born to obtain an inheritance. And this all happens through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, again, simple stuff, but 
the the reality that Peter, of all that he could have said, he specifically talks about our new birth in terms of a living hope and an inheritance. And this is going to be key, right? This is this is a baseline, right? Peter is laying the foundation for what he's going to say to these people who are, as we saw, kind of suffering under persecution. Peter is setting a foundation for them to understand. And so this hope that they have and this inheritance that they have, he's getting them to think about more than just their current circumstances. And that's really going to be kind of the theme of what we talk about even in this episode. But again, obviously, throughout the whole series, is that they have a hope that extends beyond what they currently experience. And they have an inheritance that they are looking forward to. They don't have it now, but it is something coming. It's something that they can they can bank on, right? It's something that they know they will have regardless of what they may feel, regardless of what they may experience right now. And so what Peter is trying to do is he's trying to give his audience something that we call today an eternal mindset. That idea that you we, we can't be focused so much on the here and now that we allow it to frame our understanding of things like God's love for us, our salvation, uh, what God wants for us uh, you know, in our lives and things like that. Uh, you take something like, say, the prosperity gospel. You know, that's not focused on future. That's focused on now. That's saying that God wants you happy now. He wants you wealthy now. He wants you healthy now. But that's not the idea that Peter's giving his audience, right? He He's telling them, you may not be healthy now. You may be suffering now. You may lose your property and your homes and even your lives now. But... What Peter is writing to remind them of is that you have a hope that extends so far beyond the pleasures and joys and comforts of this world. You have something waiting for you that is far more valuable and precious than anything you might have to lose now for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so that is what we think of when we talk about an eternal mindset is that we don't want to be like, uh, you know, if you've ever seen a toddler, right? Like a two or three year old and they want that candy bar or they want to stay up or they want to keep watching TV or whatever it is. And everything in their life in that moment is bound by saying, I can only be happy if I have this candy bar. I can only be happy if I get my tablet. And if I can't have the candy bar, if I can't have my tablet, then I am going to be miserable. There is no happiness for me because this is the greatest thing in my life. This is my source of satisfaction. And having an eternal mindset helps us to see that even though we're adults, even though we're 30, 40, 50 years old, we can still be like that toddler. We can still say, I cannot be happy. I am miserable. You know, God doesn't love me. And where do we base that? Where, where do we base our reality? On what we're experiencing, on our feelings. And it becomes this very dangerous thing because the truth of God and our position with him, what makes us happy, where we find safety, where we find our hope is bound up in things that are temporary, things that are fading, things that are broken by the curse of sin. And so, that's what Peter is giving his audience, and that's what we are going to see and, and hopefully continue to add to our own thinking, is we want to think about not just today, not just a year from now, but 10,000 years, 10 million years, 10 billion years from now. What are we going to be doing? Where will our satisfaction be? What is it that we are hoping in? And that's what we're going to see as we continue on. Now, 
as Peter um, is writing here, uh, this is a, I want to do kind of a logical breakdown of, again, what is being talked about with our salvation. Because it says that um, according to our great, his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. So what does that mean necessarily? How are we born again? You know, what is what does this entail? Well, obviously this is talking about salvation. And we want to remember that because again, previous verses just touched on salvation. And so Peter is continuing that theme, that idea that he has just established. So how and why are we saved? Well, it's according to his mercy. Now, what does mercy mean? One of my uh, favorite kind of simple, easy peasy understandings that I've heard over the years, many of you have probably heard this too, is understanding mercy and understanding grace can be pretty simple. Uh, We can think of grace as God giving us what we don't deserve. So really, any good thing in our lives is God's grace because we deserve nothing good. So anything good we do have, even in the smallest way, is a grace of God on people who have done nothing to deserve it. Now, on the flip side, then, mercy is not getting what we do deserve. So when it talks here that God has saved us according to his mercy, that means that God had something that he should have given us, right? That he had every right to give us. But instead, he said, no, he he chose to spare us from it. So what we want to ask then is mercy from what? What is it that we deserved that we are not now getting? Well, it's his wrath, right? He is storing up wrath that he will release in judgment on sinners. Now, we'll see when that takes place in a bit. But understand that when we talk about God's mercy, it's not just this vague thing. It's not this warm fuzzy. God's mercy necessarily has attached to it the reality of his wrath and his judgment. You know, we read in Romans, for example, that, you know, God is is storing up wrath, that that he has, has shown that he is going to unleash his wrath on sin. He is going to judge sinners. But those who have been saved by the Trinitarian work of salvation will be spared from that. God, will, God has mercy on us now and will continue that mercy into eternity. We don't just get a reprieve from his wrath. We have full salvation from it. We are 100% fully spared. And now, because God has had mercy on us, what happens Well, we're born again. That's what this passage in Peter says, right? We have been born again. But how? How are we born again? Is it our efforts? Is it our good intentions? Did God just kind of willy-nilly say, hey, you're born again? Well, no, because as Peter says, we're born again through Christ. And now what does that entail? What does that mean for us? It means that we have a future inheritance and salvation, now, a question we might be asking is, okay, Peter has, has kind of laid out that we have an inheritance and that we will be saved. Is that really all that being born again entails? Well, no. But again, we need to remember who Peter is writing to, right? What is the intention of this letter? And the intention is that his audience is suffering currently. And so Peter is likely emphasizing their inheritance and their future salvation because... 
their present isn't looking so hot. And so in giving them that eternal mindset, he is comforting them. He is equipping them. He is calling them to spiritually mature thinking by saying, remember what is coming. Remember what you have through Christ because of the mercy of God. And allow that, as we'll see, allow that to motivate you to live today in your sufferings, in your difficulties, even in your potential death because of what we have coming, because of the eternal mindset that we can have by the grace of God, we can look forward to these things even when our, our present isn't so pleasant. Put that on a t-shirt. So then as I continue thinking, I say, okay, inheritance. Do I understand accurately what that means? What does this word mean? And so with that, then I might grab a dictionary. I might grab some commentaries and things like that, depending on uh, what I have available to me, as well as for those listening, maybe uh, your own level of understanding, you know, push yourself just a little bit, but it's okay if you don't get into the super noodly stuff right away. But as I'm thinking through this word inheritance, again, why this word? Why this language? What, what did Peter's audience think of when he said that, what did Peter have in mind? What did he want to convey, not to us today, but to his audience, you know, some 2000 years ago? And so this inheritance language, as you study out kind of the word and the concept of it, we see that this is actually similar to the Old Testament language that God used when he promised Israel that they would inherit the promised land. And that's really significant then because we can start saying, okay, maybe not a one-to-one -one correlation, but that idea, what did that mean for Israel to have God's promise to inherit something in the future? And so that is kind of the Old Testament language we can think of is that God told Israel, you will inherit this. And so then as we read about Israel, as we read about even in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, for example, in Abraham and his faith that he is commended for. You know, what were they supposed to hope in? They were supposed to say, God has said it, so I'm going to trust it. They knew, or they were supposed to know, they didn't always act like it, but a good understanding, people who truly loved and followed God would know that if God has declared it, I can trust in it. I know I will have it. And as we read in the Old Testament, they didn't just get this nice little package wrapped gift as soon as God promised it. Israel suffered great difficulty. Many of them died trusting that God's promise was far off, but that they would not experience it for themselves. And again, that, that I think is kind of the, the, the feeling that uh, Peter's audience needed to connect to is God, God promised an inheritance to people who didn't get it right away. They had to suffer and go through great difficulty before they would get it. And then our own inheritance similarly is going to have associated with it difficulty and struggle before we get to fully enjoy it. Now, in terms of how the New Testament uses that word then, um, it uses it often in a legal sense. So you think of just inheritance language today, we can kind of uh, correlate that to how they would have understood it back then, right? So an inheritance is a legal term about um, an heir 
receiving something at the death of somebody. And so we see that, for example, in Romans 8, 17, which says, And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified with him. And then we can see this again uh, in Hebrews 9, 15 and 16, saying, And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place, and now, now notice that up to this point, we've seen uh, heir language, right? H-E-I-R, someone who's meant to inherit something. And then um, in Hebrews, the writer makes this kind of logical connection saying that just as an inheritance is only gained when, say, a parent or grandparent dies, since a death has taken place for the redemption of the trespasses that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of e of the eternal inheritance for where a covenant is there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it so that's that's this understanding we want to start getting about the inheritance now this hasn't answered what the inheritance is but we want to understand how it's being used and framed in the understanding we need to have that an inheritance isn't something that you earn it's something that you are given and an inheritance in, in a biblical sense, is based on the character of God. God has said you will receive something, so you will receive it. It's not up to you, it's up to him. And praise God for that, that it's not up to us, right? Uh, but then they also talk about, you know, think of an inheritance in the reality that someone had to die for you to gain something. And so we want to think about who is it that died to give us this inheritance, you know, did we, did we die to ourselves? Did our ego have to die? No. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is the one who died so that we could inherit something because of his death. Now, he didn't stay dead. But, again, just this understanding that Peter is giving us, right? This framework, biblically, that we work in is that someone died for us to gain, and what we gain is not based on our goodness. It's not based on our merit or what God gets from us, you know, how he benefits from us, because if it was that, we'd all be in trouble. But no, this inheritance is purely because of the mercy of God in giving it to us and keeping it for us, as we will see. So then... What do we inherit? That's the next question. Okay, we get it. It's a legal thing. It's it's an Old Testament throwback. Great. What's in it for me? Maybe we don't say it that way, but that is a practical question. What is this inheritance? What is it that I am inheriting? Because we can take this all kinds of weird ways, right? We can we can attach all kinds of, of fleshly desires to this or things that are outside the Bible. We can bring our own assumptions into it. So within the context of God's word, what do we gain because of Christ's death? What do or will we inherit? Well, the first thing that we inherit is salvation. We see in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So in the future, we will be gaining salvation. And as we talked about, right, as Peter already talked, we're talk we think about the mercy of God, which is associated and, and inseparable from the wrath of God. So we gain salvation from God's wrath on our sin that we rightly deserve to take. We also inherit eternal life. And we want to think of eternal life not as I'm going to exist perpetually, 
right? It's not just about my life will be unceasing because those who spend eternity in the lake of fire will similarly have an existence. But instead, this eternal life is, yes, live forever, but also it's not just the length of life, but the quality of life. So when we have an eternal life, we will have abundant, we will have thriving, right? We will have full life through Jesus Christ. And that full life, again, detach that from what we think about by having the good life, especially here in America or just Western culture in general. A full life is one spent fully in the presence of God, completely without sin, and able to love and serve Christ forever. That's what eternal life will be. It will be full of nothing but joy, right? Because we will get to live in, in the capacity and for the purposes that God has saved us into, right? The whole reason that God created people was for fellowship with him. And we finally get to do that without all this other stuff, right? This sin stuff that makes that so difficult now. Uh, but in Matthew 19, 29, that's what he talks about. It says, and anyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake, right? So it's not just about those who have lived a hard life will have a better life, but those who have lived a hard life for the sake of Jesus Christ, they will receive 100 times as much and will inherit eternal life. So whatever, whatever things that, that seem costly now, whatever difficulty we have in life now, whatever Peter's audience was facing, whatever difficulties we face, it, it just cannot compare to the glories of an eternal life with Jesus Christ. We also inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, Galatians 5.21, those who practice such things, those things being basically the works of the flesh, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So you might be noticing a little bit of a theme here, and that is that this is all will language, right? Uh, Hebrews, those who will inherit salvation. Matthew, they will inherit eternal life. Galatians, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. A little bit of a, of a teaser Keep that in your mind, the future language that is attached to our inheritance, which again, our inheritance is also a future language, right? We will inherit, not those who have inherited, but we will inherit these things. And then finally, for this discussion, what do we inherit? We will inherit the new earth. Uh, it says in Revelation 21, 7, and for context on this, if you go read uh, Revelation 21, this is framed in the new heavens and the new earth. So after the judgment over sin, after God uh, essentially wipes out the material world and recreates it, right? There's a new creation of the heavens and earth. That is where we will live forever. We will not live in heaven as we think about it forever, but instead we will live on the new earth in the presence of God, which is kind of what heaven is now. But uh, so in, in the context of that, though, in this new and eternal heavens and earth, it says, he who overcomes will inherit these things, these things, again, being the new heavens and earth, and I will be his God and he will be my son. So these are the things that we talk about that we will inherit, that we have salvation from God's wrath, but not just that, right, where we just aren't in trouble, but we also will gain an eternal life. 
right? A, a forever eternity with God. We will inherit the kingdom of God where we will rule and reign with Jesus Christ in his new kingdom. And within all of that, we will experience this in the new heavens and the new earth where we won't just be visitors, right? We are children of God. We are children of the King. And so this will be in a way our place, right? It will be given to us likely to work similar to the command of Adam and Eve to maintain the earth that they had then. And so that's what we're looking forward to. You know, salvation, often we think about, oh, I, I remove guilt from myself for now, or we uh, take it uh, unbiblically and say, you know, I get, because I'm a child of the king, I now get to live as a king or queen now. That's not the language that the Bible uses, though. There are blessings in this life, certainly. But there's no guarantee not to have difficulties today. Instead, there's a guarantee that we will not have difficulties in the future when we gain our full inheritance. And so the New Testament has other uses for this idea of inheritance language. You know, we could we could dig even deeper into specifics, but the basic understanding is that we inherit salvation from God's wrath and his righteous judgment of our sins. And we inherit eternal life in the kingdom of God, in the new heavens and the new earth. So that is this inheritance that we are supposed to be looking forward to. Now, this is a good time to pause and challenge yourself. How does that make you feel? Maybe lay on the couch, you know, I'll get my little psychologist chair and notebook and ask, how does that make you feel? But that's a, a genuine question, not, you know, does this stir up emotions in you? But what do you think about when you think about these future things? Are you excited? Are you in awe of God? Do you feel unworthy? Are you ambivalent? Are you like, oh, that's cool, I guess? Consider the context of where Peter is talking about inheritance. He is saying, you are going through great difficulty. You are struggling. Things are probably terrible. You feel completely separated from everything right now. Of all the things that Peter could have said, he could have said, just, you know, speak truth into your life, feel better about yourself, watch some cat videos. But what does Peter do to comfort these people? He says, look forward, look towards eternity. Remember what you have coming to you. This is meant to be a great and overwhelming comfort that no matter how difficult life is, the reality of our inheritance should comfort us, should console us should not just make everything happy-go-lucky, but instead, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of mourning, we can say, yes, this is life now, but this is not life forever. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, think about why you should be excited about this. And maybe take time to be honest. Pause the video or podcast and say, why am I not excited about this? That's not a guarantee you're not saved. But if you're not excited about this, that could be a guarantee that you are so focused on the here and now that you're not really concerned about these later things because you just wish that you had better things right now. That's not guaranteed to you. And living a life where you're just waiting for your day when God just, you know, lets you strike the lotto or gives you a better job or gives you a better spouse or just a spouse, whatever it is, none of those things are promised to you. Look at the promises of God and let those motivate you. Let those drive you. Let those get you excited. Let those uh, give you comfort in dark days. Because that is how Peter is using them 
And Peter's not just throwing this out there, right? Peter is divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit to write in this way, which means this needs to give us the same comfort that it gave those whose very lives may have been at risk. Now, something I want to throw in here as we go off kind of a serious thing is that uh, as I was reading, I started wondering, is this inheritance language tied to the born again language? In other words, we only gain rights to the inheritance when we're born into this family. So, so is, is the inheritance language being a legal sense that is used often with families tied to the familial language of we are born into this family? I would say probably yes. But the reason I say that is to say that I didn't pull on that thread. You know, when I'm reading, I'm seeing all these little threads that interest me and say, oh, I want to pull that one and see where it leads. And I want to pull that one and see where it goes. But sometimes I see something, I wonder something, and I'm just like, you know what? I'm, maybe another time, maybe when I reread First Peter again in the future, but for now, I'm just not going to chase that one down because it's very, very easy to, to ask so many questions that we just move nowhere and we get almost no exposure to God's word because we're so focused on answering every little question that comes up. So I want to comfort you and, and show you that there are times that you have a question that you just kind of put a mental pin in and say, not today, maybe another day. And so that is an example of one of those. That's not the only one, uh, but that is an example of where I had a question come up that I just kind of let rest for now. So then as we continue on, I start looking and I say, okay, I kind of get the idea of the inheritance, but then Peter says that this inheritance is incorruptible it's undefiled and it's unfading and it's uh, having been kept in heaven for you, right? For us. So then I'm thinking, why, why is he using such similar terms? I mean, you can, you know, as, as, a, as a word nerd myself, I appreciate the nuances involved in one word over another word and how, you know, I love the richness of language. But at the same time, Peter doesn't often repeat himself. So why is he seeming so repetitive right now? Why couldn't he just said to obtain an inheritance or an unfading inheritance? Because I think about the word incorruptible and it's like, okay, it can't be touched by dirty things, right? It can't be tainted. It can't be made gross. Um, undefiled has kind of a similar feel to it, right? You think of a defilement, especially in Jewish culture where you touch an unclean thing, right? It itself cannot somehow be made unclean or impure. And then it says it's unfading. And you think, okay, well, if something is incorruptible, right? It can't be corrupted. It can't be broken down. It can't be somehow made less than 100%. By nature, that would make it unfading, right? It's not going to lessen because that would mean that it's it's somehow able to decay. It's somehow able to weaken. So, and then he says, and all of this having been kept in heaven for you. And it's like, okay, well, heaven by nature is incorruptible and undefiled and doesn't fade. So why is Peter doing this? And so again, as you look at the terms, you might start thinking, okay, maybe there's some deep secret here. Maybe there's something really unique. You know, there these are three very intriguing uh, characteristics of our inheritance. What does it all mean? Well, as we talked last week, remember, we don't want to find the hidden meaning as, as tantalizing and as exciting as that might be. We want to find the full meaning. We want to say, what did the author intend in this? You know, when we unpack it, uh, 
when we when we let it breathe and expand and reveal itself, what did Peter actually mean here? And we might be expecting some really, you know, deep, incredible theological truth, but really, Peter was just kind of having fun. So what Peter here is ultimately doing is he is using clever wordplay in order to really reinforce in our minds the nature and quality of this inheritance. So these three words are not the only words that can describe it. They are not these unique innate qualities that it has. But instead, if you've ever listened to something like uh, a sermon, or especially if you've ever uh, found the... uh, been taught like how sermons work. Uh, typically, if you pay attention, and I'm sorry if I'm kind of uh, spoiling how the sausage is made here, but uh, sermons tend to have three points. And within those three points, you tend to want to have some something that links those three together. And oftentimes, if you pay attention, a lot of times a pastor will have his three points maybe start with the same word or keep, rep- or not the same word, the same letter. So a pastor might start with the same letter using something called alliteration. So if if the uh, you know if you're looking at a passage, uh, the pastor's uh, three points might be the uh, you know living for Christ, loving for Christ, and laughing for Christ, or something like that, right? And the whole point of that is to say when we have this this clever wordplay, it sets things in our mind, right? It makes good connections. It kind of uh, drives home what you're wanting to say. And so in that, Peter is similarly using clever wordplay, not to, to bury a secret, but to really get us to keep pointing us back to what this inheritance is and how important this inheritance is. So, you know, I just said, you know, this inheritance is an important thing. It's a vital thing to the life of any Christian, but especially those who are in their experiences, right? In their moment, suffering. This thing matters. And so Peter uh, uses clever wordplay. And so it doesn't it doesn't play itself out as well in English. I mean, we can kind of see it, right? It's uh, incorruptible, unfading, undefiled, right? The, the, the n sounds. But in the Greek, we can see this really clearly played out. So notice as I read the three Greek words that they all start and end with a similar sound. So we've got aptartos, amiantos, and amarantos. So the three words that Peter used to point back to the inherit to this inheritance start with the ah sound and they end with the toss sound. So again, not this big, you know, game changer necessarily. But it shows us that when we see something like this, when we see repetition, we want to say, what's the author getting at? What is the point of this? And again, we see reinforced in our minds and in the minds of Peter's audience, this inheritance is a focal point of our comfort. It's a focal point of our hope. Looking forward to it matters. And look at these qualities of it. It can't be in any way lessened from what it is when God promised it to us. And, and basically gave us this, this guaranteed inheritance in our salvation through Jesus Christ. And then he kind of breaks from that and tags on there. Not only is it these kind of three, three-point sermon words, but it's been kept in heaven 
for you. And that language there, having been kept, is something that says that it's been there and has continued to be there. And and we're not going to dig too deeply into that now, but just remember that we talked about how God chose us from the beginning. So this inheritance has kind of always been there, even before we were born, even before we were saved. Our inheritance has always been there waiting to be given to us in the last days. So what does kept in heaven mean? Well, similar to the three words that Peter uses, heaven is often portrayed as a physical place, right? Where the presence of God is, but the feeling that we get from heaven, right? The picture that we have, the impression that it leaves on us is that heaven is removed from earth. It's removed from corruption, from defilement, from the fading nature of, of matter and and reality, right? So heaven is an eternal perpetual thing that is just continually, continually sustained. Um, It's eternal, and in this case, our inheritance is securely rooted in God's character and power, not ours. So our inheritance is not kept under the law. Our inheritance is not kept uh, in a logbook somewhere or on a balancing scale. Our inheritance is not kept in our possession. Our inheritance is locked tight, safe with God. And who is God? He is perfect. He is pure. He is holy. He is powerful. We want to remember this inheritance that is supposed to give us so much hope. We have, we we can have fears and concerns and doubts about other things in this world, but the safety and validity and wholeness of our inheritance is never in doubt because it's with God. God's got it. And it based on who he is, We have no need to fear. We have no need to worry about him changing his mind, adding requirements to salvation, saying, oh, sorry, uh, you messed up too much. You've lost your inheritance. We, everything about our salvation is created and acted and sustained by God himself with us having no fear of somehow forfeiting it because we are not perfect. Our salvation, our inheritance, everything that we hope in has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with who God is. And again, that gives us great hope. That gives an eternal mindset meaning. Because if our eternal mindset was, I really, really hope that I behave good enough in this life to not be in trouble later, how much hope could we possibly have? But that is not what God says in here in 1 Peter or in his word. Our hope and our salvation is not bound up in our behavior, in our feelings, in our experiences, in our family, in our anything. It is only bound in God. And that is the only reason we could ever possibly hope in it in the midst of the worst circumstances. Now then, as we move on to verse five, it says, who are protected by the power of God through faith. Now, if you're following along, I have this highlighted in yellow. And again, this isn't some hard concept, but the wording here, we want to make sure that we are very careful on. And so I spent just a little extra time on this, really tracing and making sure, do I understand what it means that we are protected by the power of God and and the specifics of those words 
and through faith, as we'll talk about in a moment. So when it says protected, how does that mean? You know, is God kind of following us along, uh, you know, making sure we don't mess up too bad? No. The language here, this word protected, is the same language that you would have if you had a military garrison inside of a city. Now, again, that might be lost on us in our modern understanding, but back then, a city was safest when an army or, or soldiers were inside of it. Because if you are attacked by, say, you know, uh, barbarian tribes, your hope is only found in how quickly the military can find out about the attack, muster troops, and send them in. So if you are a city and you have no military presence, you know, your military presence is two days away. If you're being attacked now, <laughs> you're, you're done. But if you had a military garrison, right, if you had troops centered in your city, then you didn't have a whole lot to fear. Now, in, in a worldly sense, obviously, right, we don't want to we don't want to push any uh, biblical metaphors or poetic language farther than, than they're intended to. In a human sense, sure, you could still be attacked and conquered, whatever. But the idea here is that you were safe when you had your protectors there with you. And so when it says that we are protected by God, we want to have that understanding that we can live, we can fail, but the, the, the core of our safety is found in God who is ever present with us, who is not going to slack, who is not distant and far off. But God is in a similar way as a military garrison. God is in our midst. He is present with us always. And so what fear could we possibly have of anything else? And so, again, we want to understand, though, what is he protecting us from? I don't want to keep rehashing the reality of Peter's audience, but it's so easy when we think, oh, God protects, that we think that we can just, you know, make the, the most foolish decisions, that we can uh, live in a world that is hostile to the gospel and say, no, God protects me, so I'm going to be just fine. You won't be just fine, because that is not what God protects. In the, in the, uh, in the context of what Peter's talking about, we're talking about salvation. So that salvation that God gave us, that salvation that God caused, is the same salvation and inheritance that God is sustaining. And again, we, we just find hope in that, right? Peter is just continuing to build on the reality of what this inheritance is and also why we place so much hope in it. And so we want to understand, though, that with that and the safety of our inheritance and why we rest in our salvation. You know, we talk about this idea that uh, you could say once saved, always saved, right? But it's this reality that if we have been saved, we cannot remove ourselves from salvation. No one can remove salvation from us. And so when this talks about how God is protecting, he is shielding us. He is keeping us safe from any other issues out there. We want to understand that salvation, therefore, is not we save ourselves, right? We, we create salvation in ourselves somehow and God protects us. It's not that God saves us, but then we have to sustain it. It's not that we save ourselves and we protect ourselves. We don't, we don't need to expect to get to uh, the presence of God and say, God, I made the right choice to put my faith in Jesus and I was a good enough person to not screw it up. 
That's not what goes on. Even in these these first few verses of First uh, Peter uh, chapter one verses one to five, we see that that's not at all in mind with God. Instead, what we want to understand and place our hope in and look forward to is the reality that it is God who saves us, and it is God who protects that salvation. He protects us from from the the hostile forces of darkness. He protects us from ourselves. Because who is the number one person who's going to make us forfeit our salvation? Me. You. We are our own worst enemies. And God, because he is good, because he loves us, because he's not wicked, doesn't say, hey, you imperfect child, protect this priceless thing. No. God doesn't leave it up to us to to sustain ourselves into eternity. God calls us. God keeps us because God is good and would not leave something that vital up to someone like me or someone like you. Now we might ask, okay, so we're protected by the power of God through faith. What does the word faith mean? Again, we might read that and say, oh yeah, faith, sure, and then move on. But let's pause. What what actually is faith? Because especially in our culture, a lot of maybe maybe some listeners right now may not realize that when we think of faith, we think of faith as this emotional feeling, right? I I feel warm fuzzies right now, so I'm having faith. Or we say that we we walked by faith because we had this internal resolve to not do something. You know, we very easily confuse what faith is, and then because of that, in the context of what Peter's talking about, we then confuse the role that faith plays in us being our salvation being protected. So, how does God shield us through faith until we experience salvation? The short answer is that God grants us faith that saves us now and in the future. So, faith is a gift from God, right? We talked about in that Trinitarian uh, aspect, right, or the Trinitarian work of salvation, that the Holy Spirit is the one who is bringing us to the point of salvation, right? He is preparing us for salvation. And, and I asked last time, I said, you know, you think about the one thing that everyone Every, every testimony of true salvation has in common. It's that they had this realization, right? Their life experiences, whether they were saved at five or 50, their life experiences brought them to a point where they said, I see that I am a sinner. I see that I can do no good. I see that God has demands that I cannot meet. But I also see that Jesus Christ alone can save me. And I want him to. And so when we talk about placing our faith in Jesus, it's not just changing our mind. It's not just having warm, fuzzy feelings towards Jesus. It's not just kind of blindly hoping that it works out for us. Faith is the, the uh, picture I like to give people is faith is sitting in a chair, right? When you sit in a chair, there are three aspects to that. Number one, you have to realize that the chair is there. So we have to, in placing our faith in Jesus, we have to believe that Jesus Christ was real, or is real. Uh, we also have to look at a chair and say, I believe that that chair is safe and will support me. 
Similarly, we have to come to a point where we see Jesus as more than a man, as more than any other flawed idea we have of him. We need to see that Jesus is God, come in the flesh, lived a perfect life, died for our sins, took our punishment on himself. And so in realizing that Jesus existed and, and continues to exist, right? He died or he lived, died, buried, resurrected, still lives. And then believing that not only was he a real person, because even atheist historians have to admit, okay, yeah, there was a guy named Jesus of Nazareth, but also believing that he is who the Bible clearly says he is. That's still not enough, right? I can have mental assent, but as with a chair, when do you place your faith in that chair? When you sit, when you rest. In terms of Jesus Christ, it's when we say, I believe that I will inherit eternal life. I believe that I will be saved from God's wrath in the future. I trust that Jesus did this for me. When we, when we understand that, realize that, and when we, when we act in faith, right? When we sit and confess our sins, repent of them, and call on Jesus to save us, right? We ask him to save us. That is the full culmination of that saving faith. But I ask you again, where did that faith come from? Were you just lucky enough to be born into the right family, to be at work on the day when a coworker decided to invite you to church, to pass by a church that was having vacation Bible school that your, you know, your parents sent you to or something like that? Were you just one of the really lucky ones that it's just going to squeak in to eternal life or was your God always at work, having chosen you from eternity, working in your life to bring you to a point where you could understand that Jesus existed, that he is who the Bible says he is, and seeing your need for him to save you? Why do I say that? Because when we talk about how God protects us through faith, God desires for us, right? If, if you read the biblical language, and I think a reason why people get kind of confused with this idea that we can lose our salvation is that we tend to have this man-focused idea of faith saying that I have to keep believing, I have to keep living, I have to keep acting in a certain way. But when we realize that faith is a gift from God, what that means is that God grants us the ability not just to call out in the moment, but to keep desiring to live for him right? To not fade away, to not fall away. Uh, like Paul talks about how if they were of us, they would have stayed with us. Talking about those who seem to be part of the faith, right? Seem to be doing well, but then departed and just went into worldliness and apostasy. That's not that they had faith and then completely lost it, but instead they didn't have a faith given to them by God in the first place. And so when things got hard, they didn't have an eternal mindset. They couldn't. They had nothing to actually place their hope on except for their own good deeds, their own behaviors, their own emotions, being born into the right family, thinking that because I was baptized into the, the, the Jewish faith that I am somehow saved or, you know, whatever struggles they had then, whatever we do now that confuses what it is that saves us. Ultimately, we have to understand that it is God who gives us the ability, who opens our minds, who enlightens us through the Holy Spirit to understand what salvation even is and why we need it, who gives us the ability to act completely against our sin nature in order to call out, right, to, to stop desiring to be an enemy of God 
and instead surrender ourselves to Jesus Christ. That's not something we luck into. That's not something that we do because we are just a better person, if only slightly, but we are a better person than our neighbor. This faith that God gives us is what will sustain us. It's what will keep us in obedience, not perfect obedience, but because we have God's Holy Spirit in us, we will continue on. We will be preserved. We will have faith to the end because we will not fully, completely fall away. So that's the short answer, right? God gives us this faith now and in the future. He gives it to us and he protects us because he gives us the Holy Spirit who builds that faith in us. Now, the longer answer, which probably won't be longer because I'll just read it, is that faith is necessary for the moment of salvation, but it's clearly expected to be a hallmark of the Christian life. Read the book of James. Don't extend it beyond what Peter means and what the rest of Scripture teaches. This isn't saying we lose salvation if we lose faith. Rather, our faith is a gift from the God who chose us. We saw that in 1 Peter 1.1. And thus, he is the one who maintains it. Remember what we talked about. God saves us and God sustains us. God grants us the gift or God grants us the faith needed to place our faith in Jesus Christ. We see that in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. It is a gift of God. Remember that the Holy Spirit is at work is at work to grant us this faith before our conversion. We saw that in 1 Peter 1:2. Uh, 1 Peter 1:5 then gives us hope that he who began a good work in us will see it through to the end. A comfort that we find in Philippians 1:6. So, it is our faith in the work of Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins that gives us hope for eternity, which is the essence of this letter. Again, remember why Peter's talking about faith in the first place. We cannot divorce it from the text around it. He is saying you have hope for a future, perfect, guaranteed inheritance. Practically speaking, remember that it is God who shields you. It is God who gave you the faith for salvation. He is going to protect you by sustaining your faith all the way to the end. That it is not something innate in us that makes us better able to keep our salvation. But it is God who gives and preserves it. So then, just one final point before we kind of wrap this up is I said uh, kind of towards the start to notice the future language being used here, right? We will do these things. We will gain these things. Oftentimes we think of salvation as what I have now. I am now saved. Yes, you are. But keep in mind, what is it that we are saved from? God's wrath. Have Has God poured out his wrath on sin yet? No. So uh, again, salvation is a future event. And I just want to uh, kind of break down where we see that and why that matters and why that gives us hope for the future. So uh, is salvation a future event? Yes. And Peter emphasizes it throughout the letter because our future salving, because our future salvation brings hope in this life. You know, th this stuff matters. You know, yes, God's wrath is coming in the future, but that only motivates us to live for today because we know who he is in that even as we try to live for him and we stumble and fall or just completely face plant, 
we are still saved and protected. We have that guaranteed. We are declared justified now, but we know that we will be saved when God uh, holds judgment in the future. So Romans 5, 9 through 10 says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, right? Right now we are declared justified before God. In that legal sense, we are declared no longer guilty of our sins. And so God interacts with us now differently than he did before salvation, because now we've gone from a hostile relationship to a loving relationship with him. Uh, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled. Again, we've had a mended relationship. We can, we can interact with God as our father now. Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You know, that, that's an incredible thing to consider in the sequence of events in all of that is that God still is, is going to be holding judgment on the sins of, of, of people. But we, we don't need to worry about being in attendance there, right? When God holds court for all of his enemies, you know, we're going to get a little letter in the mail saying, hey, you don't need to attend. Not actually. But that's the idea that we see here is that we, we can live for God now. We can live with God as our father now. We no longer have hostility between us right? It's been mended. We've been reconciled. You know, two broken parties have been brought back together. We've been reconciled and we will be saved. That despite all the sin that we have, you know, even sinning after salvation, even if we uh, forget to, to confess a sin in our prayer and die having not confessed, we don't want to say, oh, you know, I've got, you know, license to do whatever I want because we've got the Holy Spirit in us drawing us more towards being like Christ. But we have comfort that God is our father. We we are not going to break that relationship that every way he interacts with us is because he is a father who loves us and disciplines us or tells us no because we're asking for cotton candy for dinner. But he also lavishes his love on us in ways that are best for us. And that's an incredible thing. And even in all of that, we look forward to the reality that God is not going to suddenly change his mind. He's not going to say, okay, time to get serious. God took care of all the seriousness on the cross with Christ. God the Father took care of all the seriousness on the cross with Christ. See, I told you, I, I, I say God, I know what I mean. I assume you know what I mean. But this is why we can get confused on, on essence versus persons. God the Father, though, right? Read Hebrews 10. He disciplines us as a loving father, but when we are not in need of discipline, he will also treat us like a loving father. So that is the what we experience with God now is reconciliation today, salvation in the future. So when is this salvation then? When is it going to happen? Well, we are actually given a glimpse into it. Revelation chapter 20. So way at the end of the Bible, right? And the Bible isn't necessarily organized in terms of chronology, but uh, as far as Revelation goes, yeah, basically at the end of most of what uh, is going to happen before the new heavens and the new earth. So Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15, I'm going to read the full thing and realize if you have truly placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're not going to be here. 
this is where you should be. This is where you deserve to be. And without Christ, this is where you will be. But it says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sits upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Then I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And... If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This, the book of first Peter is a mix of sorrow and hope. As Christians, we want to rejoice at at what Christ has done for us, but we also want to make sure that we keep a sense of somberness in the reality that the only thing that keeps us from being a participant in Revelation chapter 20, 11 to 15, is the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. The fact that God chose us, that the Holy Spirit prepared us and and, um, revealed truth to us, right? He illuminated us to what Jesus Christ did for us. We never want to take that for granted. And it's very easy years on down the road to just be accustomed to living the Christian life. And and I'm not trying to say we need to feel guilty because we don't wake up every day rejoicing in our salvation. Maybe we do. But what what I'm getting at, though, is that this is what's being faced by people that we know. This is what we deserve. So even even as Christians, those sins, those things that we cling to so tightly and say, God, I love you, but I also need this to be happy. Whatever sin struggles you have, if it's it's addiction to substances, if it's enslavement to pornography, if it's anger, if it's pride, if it's uh, uh, self-reliance on your own righteousness because you are such a good Christian— and everyone knows it, and, and you you find your, your hope in what others think about you, whatever it is, realize that those are the things that God punished on the cross. Those are the things that we will be saved from. And in a way, those are the things that we keep adding to Christ on the cross. He already died for them, right? Because God is sovereign. God isn't just saying, hey, I'm going to punish you for uh, 50,000 things for Ray Burns. Let's really hope he doesn't go to 50,001. No, God knew every sin that we would commit, and he punished Christ for every sin that would be written in those books of our deeds. Find sorrow in that, but still find so much joy in the fact that that same God who deserves to punish us, who had every right to punish us, had mercy on us in sending Christ not to punish us and has showed us unlimited grace in allowing us to live for him today, to have the Holy Spirit in us, drawing us towards holiness, drawing us away from sin and allowing us to live for Christ today by surrendering to him. Whatever circumstances we're in, that is where our hope is and what Christ did on the cross so that we are promised that God will not do what we see here in Revelation in the future. 
because we are justified and we will be saved. And our hope in all of that is bound up in the fact that it is God who protects us. It is God who is ensuring that inheritance stays completely untouched by most especially our nonsense. So praise God for that. Live for hope in God with that. So as I just wrap this up, uh, some quick takeaways. Uh, as you recall, whenever I am reading, some questions I like to ask myself are, what does this say about God? And what does this say or reveal about people? And so this one is especially geared towards Christians. So what did this say about God? It reminds us that God is the merciful initiator of our hope. It is God who had mercy on us to not give us what we deserve. It is God who started the thing, and that is where we find our hope. He's also the keeper of our inheritance. He didn't just do the work and say, "Here, keep it going." You know, he did. It, it's like uh, you know, if you were to give, if you were to grow this really nice exotic plant and then give it to me and say, "Here, keep it alive." You don't want to ask what happens to that plant. I could grab my camera and take you to like the four flower pots I've got sitting around my house of proof that if your last name is Burns, you cannot keep a plant alive. Even succulents. Did you know succulents are supposed to be like immune to bad plant keepers? And yet there are two dying succulents in my house. Figure that one out. But that's not what God did. God did not do the work and then give it to us to maintain. He did not tell us to do the work and then keep it up. It is God who gave it to us. It's God who protects our salvation. It's God who keeps our inheritance. This is what just these few brief words in Peter remind us of, of how good, how majestic, how amazing our God is. Now, as far as what it says about Christians, we are recipients of salvation. We consider ourselves saved now because God declares us saved, but we know that that salvation will come in the future. We are a new birth. We are a new creation. We have been taken from the family of darkness and been born again into the family of God and all that that entails. We are inheritors. As part of this new family, we will inherit so much from God. And all of it is good. All of it gives us hope. We are protected by God, right? God protects us. But we also want to realize that you, as an individual, you are protected by God. You are chosen by God. You are sealed by God. You are protected by God. The faith that you have is given to you by God. You may, in disobedience, not take full advantage of that faith that God grants. But nothing you're going to do is going to somehow put you outside of saving faith in Jesus Christ. Because it's God who protects you from yourself. And we are those who are confidently waiting on our future. We have confidence. That's what this is all about. If we, had, if we only had 99% hope that we would inherit these things, if we, if we expected some kind of balancing scales, or if we thought that we had a running tab where we gain our salvation and then lose it and then repent and gain it again, we would have no confidence. We would have no hope. We would have crossed fingers and blind hope but not true hope, not biblical hope that Peter is giving his audience, not the biblical hope that God calls for his people to have who truly trust that it is God's character that protects us. 
so we confidently wait on our future while living for today. And then as a closing challenge, remember that our inheritance is in the future, but we must still live today. Although we cannot fully experience sinless perfection, why should we not live as though we're eagerly awaiting the day when we can? Our salvation is protected by God, but that is only more motivation to live with an eternal mindset instead of living like those whose only hope is in today. So with that, I hope you've, if nothing else, just gained an eternal mindset as a follower of Jesus Christ. I hope you've been challenged to just look more towards the future instead of just your current circumstances and instead interpret your current circumstances through your future hope and say, I am guaranteed nothing in this life. Whatever I have, whatever I experience, the only thing we really know is that it is decreed by a sovereign God who calls for us to keep living for him. Not when we feel like it, not when circumstances are more ideal, but now, in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in or will find ourselves in, we live for God with equal passion, with equal purpose. Because no matter what happens now, no matter how we feel, no matter what we experience, we have an unshakable eternal hope in the inheritance given to us by God because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the faith given to us through the Holy Spirit. Praise God. And we can live in that hope. So to just uh, do some quick wrap up, that's it for the study itself. Uh, but uh, feel free to either comment on the YouTube video or even email me um, and tell me something that you learned about God or yourself. Uh, I'm not saying comment. I know people do that on YouTube to get more interactions, and that's not my goal. I just know it's easier. But really, I want to know what people are learning. I want to know how they see God better. I want to know how they are uh, loving their faith more, how they are having an eternal mindset. So if God has, has kind of stirred you up, if the Holy Spirit has revealed something to you in this study, let me know. I would genuinely be so encouraged to hear about it. Uh, again, the image of my study is in the notes if you want to check that out. There's nothing special to it, but I made the thing. It's available to you if you would like to check it out. Uh, be sure, if you're on YouTube, to like the video, uh, subscribe to the channel or the podcast, share it with others because I don't market anything. So if you found it, it's purely by the grace of God, probably using the YouTube algorithm to point you here or through a friend. So uh, if you find this valuable, if you find the channel valuable, you know, share it with others. Uh, if you'd like to support me financially, either through a one-time donation or through monthly support, check the link down in the show notes so you can figure out how that works. And... That is going to be it. Next time, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. So, Lord willing, I will see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com, where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others. Or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash onward in the faith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ.